doing, church? You guys all right tonight? Oh, you guys, oh, so refreshing. You guys are so great, lively. I thought, man, coming in from, what is it, 105 out there right now, the heat index, I thought we might be sleepy. I did request, like, maybe a new building project we should start is, like, think about this, envision this with me. If, like, when it's the dog days of summer, this floor retracts and it's a pool, and you guys, I mean, it might be crazy, but, like, you get your rafts and you can just kind of legs in the water, right? Man, I'm like, this sounds like an amazing idea. Like, let's go rent out a, let's go rent out a pool for the summer, and when it gets like this, let's just go sit out there and do our service. It'd be fun. Maybe not. Maybe not. But anyway, hey, glad you guys are here. Um, I don't know. It's so funny when it's hot like this. I was, I was doing the same thing that I still had to have my piping hot coffee. Which makes kind of no sense to me midsummer, but it's got to have it, got to have it. So glad you guys are here tonight. Um, I have the privilege of carrying on this series we've been in for the summer called Text Messages, which it's been, hey, we looked at the smaller letters of the New Testament. In fact, I got to do it uh, towards the beginning of summer. I got to do Second John, the smaller letters that are just packed full of wisdom, packed full of advice and even critique and things for us to take notice of, kind of how to live our lives in Christ. And so we're kind of in this series within a series, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And to give you again the reminder of what is going on here, it's Jesus' words through the Spirit of the Lord to John, who's writing them down on the island of Patmos. He's jotting this down as he's getting all this good information. And these letters go out to seven physical churches, okay? And the goal is for not just for those churches to take heed, but everybody that's in Christ afterwards to read these letters and glean the wisdom from them. See that what Jesus is encouraging and praising, hey, let's keep doing that. And then the things that Jesus critiques, okay, let's watch out for that in our own lives. And so that's the whole goal of these letters. And so today, I've got the fourth church with the fourth letter. And so here on the screen, you'll kind of see a map of where this region is, where these churches are right here. So I thought it was kind of important. It would be nice to know where they are. And this is back then Asia Minor, which is currently Turkey. Okay, and so we have seven of them there and kind of close together. And I'm the fourth one. I've got Theatera. I'm going to use my very much my Kentucky accent. It's very it's like Theatera, I think it's the pronunciation, but I'm not even going to mess around with that. All right, I'm going to call it Theatera. All right. And so the fourth city with the fourth letter, it's very interesting. I, I want to give you kind of the background. I'm big on context and the background of what's going on in this culture, in this city at this time. Maybe some of the struggles and adversity the church is facing here. Uh, what's the kind of the, the religion of that area? What's the focus there? Um, and so when we talk about Theotera, you have to know it's rather, it's not that incredible, really. Uh, demographically speaking, it's unimpressive. It's smaller. Like you've, we've heard from Levi on the church of Ephesus, which is a booming metropolis. We've heard from Joe on Smyrna. We've heard from Pete last week on Pergamum. And these cities are kind of more like daunting, larger cities. Smyrna, or Smyrna, I'm sorry, Theotera is different in this regard. In fact, I think it's, it reminds me a lot of the smaller towns we have here in Ohio, our very blue-collar, hard-working cities, very industrial, very hard-working. You envision a lot of calloused hands there. That's very much with Theotera. Theotera was not that incredible, but it was known for its labor unions, its labor guilds. In fact, there was a list that was uncovered not too long ago about the booming economy of this city and kind of the different trades that were going on. Listen to some of these. There were leather workers, wool workers. There were weavers, bakers, tailors, dyers, candle makers, cobblers, potters, bronze smiths, blacksmiths, 
Dyers are purple cloth and stone cutters. So this area was booming with economy and hard work. In fact, probably a lot of those older, the bigger cities like Ephesus, Pergamum, you'll hear from Laodicea later, um, some of them probably would go to this city to find some of these workers. If we're going to do a new job, we've got to go to Theatera and tap into some of the unions there and get some of the workers from there. And so that's kind of the backbone, the economically, socially of that city. But here's the thing you've got to know, because this is really the crux of our issue today, is these unions that were so vital to the people of Theatera were linked to patron deities of that city. So, like, think about this, okay? So if you were a stone cutter, you had to, you, the goal was to jump into this union. You would pay your dues. Your dues would go to the temple of whatever deity that is. Uh, so they would worship, like, Apollo, which was the Greek god of sun, but they wouldn't call him Apollo. They had a different name for him. They would worship Aphrodite. They would worship Artemis, who is the sister companion of Apollo. They have their own names, and they have temples for them. And so their dues would go to these, this idolatry, this false, these false idols. And so not only that, again, I don't know if you saw the, the title of my message today that Charlie graced me with. It's the uh, Sex and Religion Games. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, like, I was hearing it all week. So you're going to be talking about the sex games. I'm like, guys, I'm not focusing on that. No, like, no, like, what? Like, it's just, this, that's where he put it down and said, let's see how he does with this. All right. And so the reason I say that is because these unions, not only do you pay your dues to this and it goes to these false idols, you're expected to take part in the feasts that, that, that are very much are comprised of these unions. You would come together socially, you would eat, and what would happen is they would sacrifice whatever animal it is to, to the god or goddess, cut it up, you would eat that for your meal, and then afterwards it was all on. Debauchery. Once drunkenness and you f- eat to your fill, then orgies would break out and you were expected to take part in this. This is what was going on. So I want you to think about this setting, this background, okay? You're a family. You're starting a business, right? You're trying to bring income. You're trying to provide for your family. Maybe the message of Christ came in. You heard it, and it was amazing. This was something new. I wanted to make Jesus the Lord of my life, and I want him to be at the center of my life. But as time went on, and you were inundated with culture, and you're trying to get this business off the ground, and you're trying to live kind of this this holy life to sit the straight and narrow with Christ, and you're like, I'm not going to take part in the unions, I'm not going to give my money to that. I'm not going to take part in this. But maybe after time you realize you get blackballed in this city for that. You're not going to be a part of us. Well, then we're taking your name off the union. You're not going to get work. And so you see how this sets up, man, this struggle and adversity for those in Christ. And that's what's going on here. On top of that, um, you know, you have these beliefs that we've talked about many times before. When I was up here, I've talked about Gnosticism. The philosophical uh, brain power of that day was driven by Gnosticism. In fact, last week you heard Pete talk briefly about the Nicolaitans. And you're like, what the heck is that? And that's like a group within Gnosticism. Again, Gnosticism is the idea that your flesh is broken and sinful and evil, and your soul is on the inside. It's perfect. It's, it's, It's pining for the heavenly realm, and it's imprisoned by the flesh. So whatever you do in the flesh, it doesn't affect your soul, Okay. But then you have groups that come to Christ, they like the idea of Jesus, they like the idea of forgiveness and grace, and they would say this, they would say, here's the deal, you can still have Jesus. He's merciful, he's graceful, that's amazing, but here, but again, at our soul, we have this flesh, so here's what you should do. Indulge the flesh, press the the flesh, and then his grace and forgiveness will abound even more. 
So live it out. It's just, I mean, you can't do anything about it. It's just your human nature. And so that was what's going on in this culture, all around this, the church, the people of Christ. And that's the setting of Theatera. In fact, one of the most famous person from Theatera you hear about is in Acts 16, where Paul is in the city of Philippi, and he meets a lady named Lydia. Lydia was, was instrumental in the church of Philippi. Her home was a place where the church met. And it said she was from Theatera. She was a dealer in purple, which was an exotic dye that only royalty and, and the financially elite would have been able to afford. So you meet Lydia in Acts 16. And so that's the background for our letter. Our letter to Theatera, the smallest city, gets the longest letter. <laughs> it's not a good thing, right, when you see that. And so what I want to do is kind of like, if somebody had to say, Eric, what's your style? I, I, man, my style would be I'd love to take whoever is listening, and let's go kind of into the classroom to break this down in, a, in an engaging way, not a classroom where you want to fall asleep, hopefully, right? Where, where you could leave and say, man, I know this letter inside and out. I can talk to anybody about this. And so I've got this set up. This outline where we'll go through the letter, and it's broken down into six different parts. The first part is Christ, where he tells the people that are listening who he is. The next part is the commendation, where he praises what the church is doing well. The next part is the critique, and it's a rough critique. And then, he, then there's a challenge, then there's a comforting message, and then there's a closing. And so that's how we're going to walk through this. And, and all this is going to be on the screen. So if you have your Bible, open up to Revelation 2. You version, open your app up to that. And we're going to read through this, and hopefully this will make a lot more sense to you because really there's a lot of wisdom here. There's some things that Jesus praises that, man, we should live like this. And there's a rebuke that we need to be very much aware of. And at the end of this, I think there's a theme that is constant throughout not only the Old Testament but all the way through the churches of Revelation to today that kind of rises to the top, and we'll talk about that. So here we go. Let's jump into this. And all these letters have kind of start off the same where, where Jesus gives these identifiers of who he is. And you must know this, if you didn't know this already, the identifiers he chooses to use for himself are specific to the issues the church is facing. So, for example, let's read this, the 2.18, it'll be on the screens. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church of Theatera. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. Okay. Jesus is a great, just a great orator. Right? You're talking to the, the church of Theatera, which one of their most prominent unions are bronzesmiths. So already you see kind of why he's using the terminology he's using. You've heard before where Jesus will use the term, I'm the son of man. When he uses son of man, it's so that you'll understand, hey, I, I've walked the walk you're walking. I've been in your shoes. I face temptation and adversity and pain and death. I face the struggles, what, it, what it's like living on earth and walking this world and walking like for me. I've been there. So when I use Son of Man, it's so you kind of will understand that I've been in your shoes. I understand what you're going through. But he starts this letter off with, don't forget this one, though. I'm the Son of God. That God, the one true God, the highest God, the, the God that created everything, the God that created you, the God that sees all, knows all, loves all, has mercy and forgiveness. I am his and he is mine. I am the Lord. I am the Prince. He is in me and I am in him. So he starts that off. Don't you forget this. I'm the son of God. Then he goes into the specific identifiers that speak into this church. He says, I have eyes that are like flames of fire. So think about this. The church here at Theatera is gripped in sexual immorality. I've been there. I lived that. That a lot of those things take place in the dark. A lot of those things you think, which is so like just amazing to think this way that no one knows what's going on 
It's in secret. No one knows. And so Jesus here says, listen, I have eyes like flames of fire. In the first century, how are you lighting your path? How are you lighting up the darkness with a candlelight, right? You're walking around lighting up a dark room. Jesus says, listen, my eyes are like flames of fire. I see everything you do in the dark or in the light. I see it all. I know it all. There's nothing you're hiding from me. And not only that, I see to the depths of your soul. Don't forget, I see what you're doing, church, is what he's saying. And then he uses this next one. Feet like polished bronze. No doubt the the common language there, this would have spoke to someone. Like, you know, when you're in church and you say, man, it feels like they were talking right to me. That bronze smith would have heard that one. Whoa, he's using my language. And so for me, when I hear this, here's what's going on, and this is how I interpret these words for me. At the core of this message and at the core of the struggle of the church is you have varying opinions. Do I live for Christ or do I conform to culture? Two options. Which one do I go with? And so when I read Jesus say, I have feet like polished bronze, solid metal that will never fade or never go away. It's strong, unmoving, unchanging. It just reminds me of Jesus' words to the wise man who built his foundation on the rock, right? Invest in me. I have bronzed feet that will not move. They're solid. It's unchanging. It will always be here rather than building it on shifting sand. He's saying, I'm a firm foundation that you can trust in that you can invest in. And so that's how he opens it up. And then he moves into kind of the commendation, praising this church for the things they have done well. And so it's on the screens. He says, I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. So this is just like token good cop now, right? You've done this with your kids, good cop, bad cop. He's going to start off by, here's the things you've done well. You've done some good things. And I see those things. And I'm praising you for them. I've heard people say, like, how is it they're doing good? And then he goes off into a hardcore rebuke of what they're doing. So because it's like the law of averages. When you have many people, there's people that are going to be doing things well, people that aren't going to be doing things so well. And we have a large church, and that could be said here as well of any church. Some people are doing it and living uniquely for Christ, and some aren't. So he's saying, those you've done, you've done well. I've noticed these things. In fact, you've grown in these things. You've improved. And here it comes, the big ugly, looming, overwhelming butt. We have to look at this butt. We really have to examine this butt. It's a huge butt, and it's something we have to study. Right? <laughs> Took you a while to get all that, like, is he being serious or is he joking? Right? right? Like, do I laugh at this or not? He just said butt. It's a butt. I mean, it's a big butt there, right? It happens like that all the time. It, it, this, this section reminds me, oh, my gosh, I miss my grandmother. My grandmother is gone and with Jesus, and I cannot wait to see her again. She was, uh, obviously, I'm biased with the greatest grandmother in history. Um, and I remember she, I don't know if your grandmothers ever did this, and maybe grandmas, if you're here, maybe you do this. But she would do this. I remember this. She would say, Eric, why do you, why do you hang out with that boy? He's so stupid. <laughs> Bless his heart. I love it. I'd be like, wait, the first time I heard, like, wait, what? He's just a dumb boy. He does dumb things, but bless his heart. My grandma doesn't make it right. And like, she would come, like, it would kill me. She, you know, she would enjoy talking of people. She would enjoy that. And every time it was followed up by, bless her heart, bless his heart. Like, it doesn't make it okay, grandma. Like, come on. This reminded me of that. This cracks me up. Um, but here's the but. And Jesus says, you've done things well, but man, we need to focus on this. And so we're going to dive into this today. He says, but I have this complaint against you. 
you are permitting that woman, tolerating or allowing that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. And like I said earlier, like that's why I set that up. This is the cultural context of what's going on here. Running rampant, this sexual immorality, these feasts that you do with the, a part of the unions. You've got to do this, right? And so we'll talk about that a little bit more. And this is what's going on, is this, this struggle of this prophetess, it says, this prophetess. What that means is she, she showed up and said, I'm a prophet, which means I am the voice, I am the voice piece of Christ, of God. I speak his message. That's what I'm here for. And in that setting, very much what I mentioned earlier, she would have said some things like, hey, listen, I understand the, the message of Jesus. Maybe you can, you can have him and convenience and comfort. Would Jesus, and I imagine, I love to, to, to figure what the, the words that would have been said. And I like to use it to maybe the words I would hear today from someone who was coming in with this. Listen, would, would this type of God, would, would Jesus really have you not make a living for yourself? Provide for your family? Come on, you know our philosophy around here. Indulge the flesh. Your flesh is broken. What, like, it's not going to hurt your soul. Come on. And so the idea is here, they tolerated this false lie, this, this false message. And you must understand this about the setting. This isn't directed at, at unchurched people. This is people that have given their life to Christ, churched people where they allowed this to come in and this message to be spoken and people who were in Christ are now leaving. And so Jesus has this harsh message, this Jezebel. And so if you have any idea, if you have any connection or know anything about Jezebel, this is a reminder, but for many, they may not know who Jezebel is. First of all, is there any Jezebels in here? i got to address that first, right? Because this is going to be harsh if that's you, Right? It's amazing, though, no one. I mean, I've done this before where, I've, where that question's been asked. No one raises the hand. It's because it's like culturally, even people who don't even believe the Bible or believe Jesus but know the story of Jezebel know, I don't name my daughter Jezebel. She's got a legend of, of reprehensible behavior that even culture doesn't want to name their kids Jezebel. And so Jezebel shows up in 1 Kings 16. And now you're getting into my sweet spot. I love, I love diving into Old Testament history and, and stories. And First and Second Kings are two books that would have been put together, actually. They were written together. It would have just been kings. And the story of Jezebel shows up in First Kings chapter 16. And what you need to know at this time is God's people, the Israelites, have now been broken up into two kingdoms. Okay? David was king. Things went well towards the end. Solomon came in. Things started to go off the tracks a little bit. And then his son Rehoboam ruined it. They split. They separated. There was northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Northern kingdom was Israel. Southern kingdom was Judah. And in the book of Kings, it's a historical book about the, the, the life and times during the rules of these different kings. There was roughly 40 kings. Just to let you know, when a king took power and it was written about him, there was like this, this sentence to say, okay, did they do well in the sight of God? They did evil in the sight of God. Just to, for you to know, of the 40, eight did well in the sight of God. All right? And all of them were in the southern kingdom. There was roughly 20 in the northern kingdom. They were awful. And that's where our setting takes place. King Ahab in the northern kingdom has now taken, taken rule, come to power. 
over the people. And in that day, what you would do, and you hear about this with Solomon, he had all these wives. Well, that was political in nature. When you would make a peace treaty with a foreign land or a foreign people, generally you would sign that by marrying the daughter. And so this is what happened. King Ahab wanted to make a, make a peace treaty with the I, I always mess it up. I always say Sidians, Sidonians. And so he wanted to make peace with them. And so the king said, yeah, we'll do that, but you've got you to marry my daughter, Jezebel. Sounds rough, right? Sounds mean. I feel bad. Um, but he brings Jezebel into the northern kingdom now, to the, to the Israelites. And so she knows nothing. She could care nothing about the god Yahweh that they worshipped. She's not interested in that. She brings with her her foreign god and goddesses. She worshipped Baal, and with Baal there's always a, a female component. It was Ashtaroth. And so she, what she did is when she came in as queen, she killed off, she had killed off God's prophets. She wiped out all of God's altars. And she made them altars to Baal. And, and for Ashtaroth, you had a pole. Sounds weird, right? And so with that, when you worship Ashtaroth, it was feasts and sexual orgies like crazy. And so that's you see the similarities here, right? You see how these kind of mirror each other. And so she pushed all of the Israelites, not that it took much, because generally when we think about ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, our hearts eagerly wander. And so you're saying, hey, I'm bringing in all this ritualistic sex acts. Man, that's, people are going to like that. And they start wandering away from God. And so in this setting of kings is when you're introduced to prophets where God raises up a prophet to bring his people back, to call out the atrocities of the king, and hopefully to bring the people back. And my favorite prophet of all time is Elijah. And then his partner was Elisha later on. And they have this battle with Jezebel and King Ahab throughout 1 Kings 17 and on, when she, her death is in 2 Kings 9. And so what you have here is, like I started off earlier, you have these two opinions Jezebel brings in this, the idea. You can worship these false gods. It's way more fun, way more comfortable. Just press the flesh, live it out. It's going to be great. And you have God's people now having to say, okay, do we stick to Yahweh or do we turn to these foreign gods? Well, we're going to go with everyone else. And so you have this battle. And I want to share this with you because it's just, I, just, I think it's a fun thing to share. Uh, it doesn't really, I mean, I guess it helps out. You get to learn some things. But um, Elijah had this battle, one of the greatest battles I love in the Old Testament with King Ahab and, and Jezebel. He said, here's the deal. Let's see whose God's the most legit. Let's see whose God will show up. Let's have a showdown tomorrow at Mount Carmel. You bring all your prophets, which is 850, and it'll be me. And what we're going to do is see whose God shows up. We'll get out here. You have your altar. So kill a bull, sacrifice, you know, cut him up, put him on the altar, and you call out to Baal and have him light up the altar. Let's see if he shows up. And so they get out there. They get out to this, this altar, and he says, go for it. And so they start dancing around, hooping and hollering, yelling out to Baal, hey, light, you know, do your thing, light this up. Nothing's happening. I share this because one of my favorite sections of Scripture is Elijah's smack talk. No joke. He talks smack. Wait, there, I, there's no other section of scripture. Where I'm like, where, is there anywhere where God's where God's guy speaks talks smack? He talks smack. Listen, in the middle of this this hooping and hollering, he says to him, maybe yell louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Literally in scripture, maybe he's relieving himself. In other words, maybe he's in the bathroom. He can't hear you. It's amazing. And so they do. They get louder. They start cutting themselves. They start spilling blood because that's what they do. 
Nothing happens. And Elijah finally steps in and says, okay, let me stop you. It's my turn. And so he steps down. He picks up rocks because, again, the altars were destroyed. God's altars. And he starts stacking rocks back up. He says, bring me the bull. Let's cut it up, put the pieces on the altar. Here's what I need you to do. Three different times I need you to fill up basins of water and, and soak the altar. Fill up, put trenches around the altar, fill it up with water. I don't know if you, you do campfires and stuff. Water is generally not helpful, right? Soak this thing. And he does this thing that I love, this question, because right here he steps out in front of the Israelites and says, here's the thing. How long will you waver between two opinions? Same message that could be given to the church at Theotera and maybe even us today. How long will you waver between culture and Christ? How long will you waver between the God, Yahweh, and all these foreign gods? And then he steps back and he says, God of our fathers, God of Abraham, send down fire on this altar. And he just lights it up, soaks up the water. Everyone falls on their face, says this is the one true God, which quickly they turn their back again on God. But at this moment is when Jezebel would have gotten furious. She told Elijah, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow. We know that he went and hid out and, and spared his life. He, she didn't kill him. But it, it was this whole battle that's constantly going on between this Jezebel and, and God. And so now you know the setting for the reference that Christ is using here. This person who is amongst you, who is speaking this false message, is a Jezebel. She's pushing you away from me. She's pushing you to sexual immorality. She's pushing you to these foreign gods, and, and, and you're adulterating yourself because of this. And so that's the critique. And I, and I like to think of the people sitting there. Why, you know, why would our hearts grow? Like, why would we give in to that message? And I like to build a story there of thinking, like, maybe there's just a family sitting there. Maybe it's just they were on fire for Jesus when that message came. And time went by. I'm trying to be honest and create my own business. And I'm getting no work. It's a struggle to provide for my family. Everyone around me is telling me how stupid I am for doing this. How could you follow that type of God? And the seeds of doubt and discouragement may creep in. And I've been there, man. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now. Where those seeds creep in. It's like, is this really the way I should live? And in that setting, this message comes out. Listen, you can have comfort. You can have convenience. And you're Jesus. Just follow what everyone else is doing. And I've seen this take take place. A couple weeks ago, my my ten year old played in a tournament. Um, their first first their first kid pitch tournament. So he did rec league with his team, and now the coach said, "Hey, let's jump out because next year we're going to transition to kid pitch. Why don't we do a tournament and see where we all stand? What we need to work on in the off season." It's like, "Oh, this is cool. All right." And so they had this tournament two weeks ago, and again, the expectations were they won't do well. <laughs> Like, don't, parents, don't get, don't get into this. It's, it's going to be a struggle if they've never done this. They've never, they've never thrown. They've never seen live pitching. It's going to be a struggle. And so the first two games out there, they got blown out. They lost, I think it was like 12-2, 14-2, something like that, both games. And then the third game was like this play-in game for the bra- in the brackets. The bottom feeders, the four teams, we were one of them. You're going to play in to see if you can play the number one seed. And so I was here last Saturday night, and they won 13-4. to 4. So now they have some confidence, right? Well, the next game is number one seed who they already played. Good team. This team fields well, hits well, pitches well. They look flawless. And for three innings they were. It was 12-2. to 2. 
Well, in this setting, you know, you get three innings and then you have to switch pitchers. It's the top of the fourth. The time limit's bearing down on us, and they have a new pitcher in. And I love this because I love sports. I coached it. I played it. I love seeing the mental aspect of the game play out because the psyche is the most powerful thing. And so this new pitcher struggling to locate. Can't get it over. So he's walking one. He's walking two. Our guys have a little bit more confidence in swinging the bat. So when that ball does come over, they're hitting it. One run in, two runs in, walk two more, walk three, two runs in. It's now 12 to 6. Field the ball at shortstop, throw it over the first baseman's head. It's 12 to 7. Drop it outfield, pop fly, 12 to 8. And I'm sitting there like, this is unbelievable. And you watch it, the, the seeds of doubt and discouragement. We may lose. And in that moment, you forget everything you knew up to that moment. The first three innings, we were unstoppable. They couldn't get a runner on base. We were throwing them out. We were feeling everything. And now the thought of this doubt and discouragement, I can't even feel the ball correctly now. They ended up winning. They won. It was 12 to 10. The, other, the number one seed won. But it was just incredible watching it. Like, man, I remember that from my days. Where that, the seeds of doubt and discouragement coming in. You forget everything that you knew. And it's like this. In the midst of that, this Jezebel comes in and says, hey, you can have your cake and eat it too. It's this message of comfort and convenience. And I'm reminded, C.S. Lewis is, again, one of my favorite writers. And he had this incredible quote I think that many of us can empathize with. Um, He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew, I love this. (laughs) I probably shouldn't say I love this. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. I always knew alcohol would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And I think that's kind of the challenge here. Is that, listen, I know, man, Jesus will cost us some things. And some of you might have already faced that. He says that I might divide families. Maybe you lost out on a job or promotion because of him. Maybe your family doesn't talk anymore because of him. Maybe you lost friendships because of him. And that's a struggle. And I think that's the struggle going on here. Let's continue on reading through some of this. And now Jesus turns to the challenge portion. We've talked about the issues. Now here's his challenge. What I, what I love about the gospel and the cross of Jesus is that no matter how far you've gone or the depths of your depravity, everyone has access to Jesus. And here he says it here. He says it here. I gave her, let's, let's, it'll be on the screens. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, he says, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. She's going to use a bed for this sexual immorality, sexual acts to push my people away. I'm going to throw her on a bed, but it's going to be different. It's going to be a bed of suffering. And those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly. That means anyone who who wants to follow her message and live it out, adulterate themselves, to turn their back on me, they will also suffer greatly. Unless, there it is, they repent. And turn away from her evil deeds. I love that. That's the message of the cross in this. Every message should point to Jesus and on the cross, the gospel message. No matter where you are, you could be someone who has pushed everyone away from Christ. You have access. Jesus loves you. You can come to him. just need to repent. He goes on, but I will strike her children dead. That sounds rough. And what he means by that, and if you don't know the story of Jezebel, this is literally the story of their history in the Old Testament. The prophecy on her was, your family is going to die off quickly. They're going to be killed off because of everything you guys did, the atrocities you've done against God's people. And they did. Again, this is another mirroring of that story. 
But he's also saying, listen, if you're going to follow this message, this false message, it's going to lead to spiritual death. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. It's a reminder again, I have eyes like flames of fire. I see everything and I search all things. I see it all. There's nothing you're doing in the dark. And so there's this challenge in there. The first part is this repentance. Hey, you you have access to him. Everyone does. Just repent of their old ways and come to him. And he will make your paths light. He will make your paths uh, of mercy and forgiveness. It's something new. And the other part is he's telling, here's the next part of his challenge is to hold fast. He says, but I also have a message for the rest of you in the church who have not followed this false teaching. The deeper truths, they call them. That's, again, a reference to Gnosticism. If you've been here before, they they would say this. As a Gnostic teacher, I would say, hey, I'm privileged to deeper truths than you. You don't understand. I have deeper truths. And those truths are you can indulge yourself. You can press the flesh. You can do this. And Jesus says, no, they're depths of Satan. He says, I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. So the next challenge is to hold fast. Endurance. Hold tightly to who I am, to live uniquely Christian. And I think that's really the struggle that's going on here is, is, is people that's hearing this, this false message is, man, I, I can live like everyone around me. I can conform to culture. Or should I live uniquely for God? And that's that battle that's going on. And then he says this, and we'll wrap up this part of it with, with this, the message of comfort to those who overcome. He says, to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star, which is Jesus. He said, listen, if you hold to this, if you live uniquely for me, it's going to pay off, I promise you. It's going to be worth it. Stand firm, you'll be victorious. I love some of the other translations say overcomers. You will overcome. And then he signs off like all the other letters. Anyone who truly has ears, he says, right? Anyone who hears, who, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So he wraps up by saying this message is for everyone to listen to these different messages to these different churches because there's, there's wisdom there. And so I want to transition to what I think is really at the, at the, at the crux here, the battle that's going on is that in Christ we are called to live the churchy word as holy lives, which simply means set apart. Another term is unique. To live uniquely for Christ. To not conform to the world around us. This is stamped all over Scripture. One of my favorite quotes, you'll see it on the screen from A.W. Tozer, says, You cannot study the Bible diligently and earnestly without being struck by an obvious fact. The whole matter of personal holiness is highly important to God. From the beginning of time to us today here in Dayton. It's a constant struggle. If, am I going to live today for Christ or for culture? In my marriage, with my children, in my workplace environment, with my friends, man, with social media, the way I interact with others. I'm going to live for Christ or I'm going to conform to culture. And this is God's will for us. And 
you're going to see these on the screen. We'll, we'll blow through these quickly. Another issue facing another church in Thessalonica is very similar to what we're facing here in Theotero. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Live uniquely with your body. Don't live the way culture tells you to live. Live uniquely for Christ. 1 Timothy 1.9, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. 1 Peter, Peter beats this over the head constantly in his letters. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your old desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. Now you must be holy. You must be unique in everything you do. That's exhausting and overwhelming. See, the idea is in Christ we've been made new. It's this idea that Eric doesn't go back to the way he lived before Christ. It's this idea that, man, we've been stamped with Jesus. You are his. And so live a unique life in him. Don't conform anymore to this culture. 2 Corinthians, I love this message, the message version. With promises like this to pull us on, dear friends, let's make a clean break with everything that defiles or distracts us both within and without. Let's make our entire lives fit in holy temples for the worship of God. Constant reminder, from the beginning to the end, there's always these different messages we face on a daily basis. Constantly, we're hearing mixed messages of how we should live, how we should act, how we should parent, how we should be married, how we should lead, how we should be in our workplace environment, how we should respond on social media, how we should, man, constantly and most of the time, it's in opposition to what Christ would want us to do. I'm reading a book right now that is just killer right now. I love this guy. His name's Ed Stetzer. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, very accomplished. Does a lot of great things. He, he's on staff at um, Wheaton College. Um, does a lot of work for Lifeway. Does a lot of statistics. And he wrote a book called Christians in the Age of Outrage. How to, how to live at our best when the world's at its worst. And man, it is all about this idea that we are to live unique lives in Christ and that everything around us, there's outrage everywhere. How do we live amongst that and in that? I would encourage you to check it out. It, it has been convicting as this message has been convicting as, it all, as they always are. And this is my last verse. I swear we could teach on this verse every weekend. Romans 12.1. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is the true, truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Don't copy the behavior and customs when it comes to the way you respond, to the way you love, to the way you lead, to the way you parent, to the way you surf the Internet, to the way you view your neighbor. Be uniquely Christian. And that takes a battle. J.C. Rao, one of my favorite quotes is, there is no holiness without warfare. You have to fight for it. Every day it's exhausting, believe me. And every day it's worth it, but it's exhausting. I had it this week. Every day, when I when I... Didn't expect that. 
when I put these messages or when I come up to teach or I do it with students, that's my wife, man. There's days, there are days I come home. It's like, man, I don't know if I should do this. Me of all people, I'm talking on this message. If voices in my head say, like, man, do you remember what your life was like before Christ? How can you talk on this? Gosh, you pressed the flesh pretty hard, man. And so I tell, t- tell people all the time, it's like, man, I live, I live with that every day. When you have kids that you raise and you try to impress upon them these, the, the way to live for Christ is so much better. I tell people all the time, there's going to be a time when my son, my daughter asked me, did you do this? Man, that's just the, the repercussions of choosing that lifestyle. It's a kick in the stomach. And if it's not, if it's, if I didn't have God's word and his truth and who he says I am, man, I would be gone. It's a warfare every day. And the enemy loves to remind you. The enemy tries to pull you to conform to culture. To just come on. He's so mighty to forgive, which he is. Remember Paul addressed this in Romans 6, 1, right? He says, should we sin more so grace may abound? He says, heck no. Heck no. In fact, I would think the barometer of your heart will reveal if you're asking those questions. Made a little, little bit more growth in Christ. And so I want to wrap up with this. Okay. Um, if you wanted to read 1 Peter 1, like 13 through 16, is like this amazing blueprint of what we're talking about. Kind of like holiness is imitating Christ. It's a move from the former way of life to the new. It's putting into practice God's word. It's a lifestyle. I love that. Remember, people, I'm on a, you're you're doing a diet? No, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's every day. And I'm going to wrap up with this. And here's some practical steps maybe that that can help. And I'm all about like some sort of thing that you can take and maybe start doing. Because this is definitely something that's going to be hanging in my office. Came across this this week. It was killer. Whenever you're faced with that temptation to conform, to conform, and not live uniquely for Christ. Ask these questions, whatever that may be. Does this glorify God? Is this consistent with who he's, who he is? Is this consistent with what he says? Is this beneficial for me spiritually, mentally, physically? And I love this last one. Does this help others positively and not hurt others unnecessarily? I'm telling you, man, if, if we live this out, if this is literally we stop and pause before impulses kick in and we start asking these questions, I think social media would look a lot different. I think our families and our lives would look a lot different. Our workplace. Because here's the thing. Jesus described us, those in Christ, the church, you all, as yeast in the dough. Love that. Pete used bread last week. I'm going to keep going with that. Yeast in the dough. The catalyst the catalyst that gets that that bread to rise. You are like yeast in the dough. When you live uniquely for Christ, that dough is rising all around us in our culture, for us specifically in the city of Dayton. When you are yeast in the dough, when you live uniquely for Christ, when you don't conform to culture and you're going to conform to the image of Christ, it's yeast in the dough. I love that image. It's every day saying, I'm, I'm living out what Paul talked about in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control. 
That's the way I'm going to choose to live. And so that's the struggle. It's a struggle. It's a big struggle every day because we are inundated with mixed messages. Constantly to conform, to tolerate this Jezebelian message. Christ is saying, hold fast. Southbrook, hold fast. And for you that are in here that, that maybe have struggled with this, and maybe you feel you're too far gone, remind you of the cross that he says, all have access to me. Jesus died for every one of us, no matter how depraved our life had been. He says, I am here. Come to me, and I will give you rest. I will make you new. So that's the challenge. As we leave here, man, be yeast in the dough. And this isn't, listen, this isn't, we talk, we're not talking about it. We're not being legalists. My favorite quote on this is D.L. Moody. He says, it is a great deal better to live a holy life than to talk about it. We are told to let our light shine, and if it does, we won't need to tell anyone it does. The light will be its own witness. Lighthouses don't ring bells or fire cannons to call attention to their shining. They just shine. So be the yeast this week as you leave here at Southbrook. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this church. I love this community. I thank you uh, for this city. Um, I thank you for this message. I think at the crux of everything throughout all of history to today is the, the battle of two opinions. Elijah addressed it thousands of years ago that we waver between at times. Today we may live uniquely for you. Tomorrow we may not. And that's the everyday struggle that hopefully we pick ourselves back up the day after and say we're going to be yeast in the dough. Lord, I thank you for this place. I thank you that the cross stands tall for everyone. Come to me, you say. So we thank you for that. And help us hold fast to the truth of who you are. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.